hello, and welcome to the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and this is our inaugural episode of the podcast. It's the first one that we are going to put out there. Now, we've already recorded a second episode. We have a third ready to go, and by the time we put this up, we'll have at least three episodes for you to listen to. But this is the first one that we want to get out there because it goes to one of the primary issues that Citizens Take Action is focused on. And frankly, if you're someone who's concerned about the fate of our political system or the state of our political system, and I would be concerned if you weren't, then you're someone who needs to care about this issue as well. And that is big money in politics. And more specifically, passing a constitutional amendment to diminish the influence of big money in politics. In this episode, we are going to go into why big money in politics is such a fundamental, critical problem, the kind of problem we need to solve in order to solve so many other problems. We'll talk about how we got into this mess, why a constitutional amendment is needed to get us out, and most importantly, how you can help and how you can get involved in the movement to fix our broken campaign finance system. I will be flying solo in this episode, but don't worry, you're in good hands. I've given a talk like this many times, and we really wanted to get this out there as an educational resource for you and for other listeners, because we know there are a lot of people who want big money out of politics, but would like more information about what they can do about it, and would even like to be able to advocate in their communities for a constitutional amendment. And I promise that by the end of this podcast, you'll be much more equipped to do that. So let's jump right in and start with something that usually is not a hard sell when I speak to political groups or congressional staffers, which is the idea that big money in politics is a significant problem. When I go to local Republican or Democratic clubs to talk about this, I usually ask people, raise your hand if you don't think big money in politics is a problem, and it's rare for a hand to go up. According to some recent polls uh, published by the New York Times, 84% of Americans believe that big money has too much influence in our political system. 85% of Americans believe we need to either fundamentally transform or completely rebuild our campaign finance system. I assume that you probably think there's too much money in politics, but I want to spend a little time as someone who's worked in Congress and advocated for legislation, explaining how I see the impact that big money has on our political system from beginning to end. The problems caused by big money in politics start before candidates even reach office. When elections cost millions or tens of millions of dollars, Many good people, the kind of people we actually want in office, are deterred from running altogether because they aren't comfortable or willing or don't have the connections to raise the huge amounts of money necessary to be competitive in costly elections. And that's why so many contests, not all but many, feel like a contest between the lesser of two evils instead of between the greater of two goods. As Lawrence Lessig describes it, Before the actual primary election, when we get to cast our ballots, there's already been a fundraising primary or a money primary that these candidates have gone through that happens without 
meaningful input from the vast majority of Americans. So the problems caused by money in politics start very early in the process. And when candidates reach office, the stranglehold of big money gets even tighter because in order to build their re-election war chest, many candidates need to spend upwards of 30 hours a week dialing for dollars, according to some estimates. That's time that should ideally be spent representing their constituents, working on legislation, doing things to better the lives of the people that they represent. But instead, due to the demands of campaigns, our elected officials are spending more time fundraising than legislating in some cases. But I think the most clear and damaging result of big money in politics is that too much legislation favors special interests, corporations, unions, or ultra-wealthy individuals at the expense of the majority of Americans. Let me bring this home with a few specific examples. One of the primary issues that people have been focused on in the past year is gun violence. And understandably so, due to the sheer number of school shootings or mass shootings that have occurred. I'm sure our listeners run the gamut of people who have never touched a gun in their lives to those who are proud gun owners and say that they support the Second Amendment. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, polls show that a majority of both Republicans and Democrats support certain measures designed to limit gun violence or designed to limit access to guns among certain types of people who may pose a danger to others. For example, polls show that a majority of Republicans and Democrats support universal background checks, measures to prevent people who are on the no-fly list from owning a gun, or measures tracking gun sales. All things that are relatively moderate steps to make sure that Guns aren't getting into the hands of some of the most dangerous people in our society. But despite that level of support, a majority of bipartisan support, for years Congress has been unable to pass legislation to enact those reforms. And I think this is a telltale sign of the influence of big money in politics and its impact is when you see public opinion far on one side of an issue, but legislation that fails to match that public opinion. Or in other words, when Congress doesn't do what the majority of their constituents overwhelmingly want them to do, right? You would think that members of Congress want their constituents to be happy, want to get reelected. And in most cases, if polls show that Republicans and Democrats support something, members of Congress would be leaping over themselves to vote for it. And when that's not the case, you can usually follow the money. Of course, on the issue of gun violence or gun safety, you need to look at the NRA, which spent over $50 million in the 2016 election cycle alone on lobbying and expenditures to influence elections and to influence the gun debate. So on one hand, you have what the majority of Americans support, background checks, tracking gun sales, preventing no-fly list members from owning a gun. And on the other hand, you have the NRA and it's $50 million in spending in an election cycle, and the NRA wins. Um, net neutrality was in the news in late 2017 and earlier this year. Net neutrality is what stops internet service providers from slowing down content from some websites and speeding up others. And we've gotten used to the internet being equal 
egalitarian in that regard, in that all content is treated equally by service providers. And not surprisingly, eight out of 10 Americans support this. They don't want to be forced to pay more to get their favorite content at the same speed that they currently get it at today. But in late 2017, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality. And once again, you have to wonder, why would the FCC do something that 80% of Americans don't want them to do? Follow the money. 18 telecom companies spent over $110 million lobbying the FCC to repeal net neutrality. And as the FCC's vote showed, they were successful. Net neutrality is now on the ropes. And again, what you've got are a majority of Americans on one side, a few wealthy corporations or powerful interests on the other, and the wealthy, powerful interests win. One last classic example I'll give of the influence of big money over our legislative process and over legislation goes back to prescription drug prices. Now, in 2003, Congress was working on legislation that included something called Medicare Part D. And as part of this legislation, Congress had the opportunity to give government the authority to negotiate prescription drug prices. And negotiating those prices presumably would have led to lower prescription drug prices for Americans in many cases. Not surprisingly, 93% of Democrats and 74% of Republicans supported the government being allowed to negotiate those drug prices. But you can probably guess where this is going. Rather than empowering the government to negotiate prescription drug prices and saving Americans some of their hard-earned dollars, the legislation instead came down in favor of drug companies and prevented the government from negotiating those prices. It's been called one of the biggest handouts from taxpayers to drug companies in American history. And of course, when you look at how much the prescription drug industry and the healthcare industry spends on lobbying and political expenditures, over $1.9 billion with a B since 2003, it's clear that the influence of big money results in legislation that doesn't work to the benefit of the vast majority of Americans. This entire podcast could be about these issues, student loan debt, education, private prisons, you name it. You can usually trace the influence of big money in politics directly to legislation that seems to favor powerful interests at our expense. But I think by now you probably get the idea. So let's turn to how did we get into this mess? Because government hasn't always worked like this, not even in the United States. And in fact, back in the early 20th century, Congress passed something called the Tillman Act, which drastically limited the ability of corporations to influence elections. And they passed subsequent legislation to crack down on unions. In fact, I found a quote from the debate on the Tillman Act that I think speaks to the perspective that we have today, but that members of Congress had back then, which was, quote, the evils of the use of money in connection with political elections are so generally recognized that the committee deem it unnecessary to make any argument in favor of the general purpose of this measure. In other words, in 1907, Congress said, the evils of big money in politics are so obvious that we don't even need to discuss them. And that's where we were a century ago. Unfortunately, things have really changed since then. And so if you want to know how we went from the Tillman Act to today's outrageous campaign spending, 
you have to look at Supreme Court decisions. The short answer to how big money got into politics is a few poorly reasoned Supreme Court decisions. The first one that we like to highlight, and really the turning point, the place where the Supreme Court started to take a very wrong turn on campaign finance law is Buckley v. Vallejo. Buckley was a 1976 case that the Supreme Court heard in response to a number of campaign finance laws passed by Congress. Now, this was the Nixon era or in response to the Nixon era corruption, and Congress wanted to crack down on money in politics. So they passed all sorts of limits on campaign contributions, outside campaign spending, how much a candidate could spend from their own fortune, disclosure requirements, you name it. And when this law was challenged, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to really affirm the importance of the integrity of our elections and our democracy and side with the United States Congress and say that these laws were in the interest of protecting the integrity of our democracy, of making sure government works the way that it's supposed to work, in which our elected officials represent their constituents, not disproportionately their donors. But unfortunately, the court went in a different direction and issued a perplexing decision that made very strange distinctions, especially on campaign contributions versus campaign spending. To give you the Cliff Notes version, because this is, I believe, the longest or one of the two longest decisions in Supreme Court history, the Supreme Court upheld limits on campaign contributions. They saw how an individual giving thousands of dollars directly to a political candidate's campaign could pose the threat of corruption or at least create the appearance of corruption and therefore conceded that Congress had a compelling interest, a compelling reason for those limits on campaign contributions. But strangely, they did not take the same approach on outside campaign independent expenditures. So while the Supreme Court saw how an individual contributing $5,000 to a congressional candidate's campaign posed a risk of corruption, they didn't see the same risk of corruption if an individual spent $5 million on outside expenditures to support that same candidate or to trash their opponent through advertising or other means. And that strange distinction where the court couldn't see how independent expenditures posed a serious risk to the integrity of our government and our elections is why people like the Koch brothers and George Soros can spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections today. Not only that, but Buckley really set up a toxic framework, you know, because the Supreme Court operates based on precedent, or at least it does often enough. So when they set this precedent in Buckley, that only corruption was a reason to limit the influence of money in elections, and only this very narrow kind of corruption of directly giving money to a candidate's campaign, it laid a poor foundation for future Supreme Court cases and meant that it was going to be difficult for the court to crack down on campaign spending in the future. The second case that we like to highlight is one you've probably heard of before, the court's infamous decision in Citizens United. Now, Citizens United essentially did for corporations and unions what Buckley did for individuals, which was affirmed that corporations and unions had the right to spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections. 
Now, there's sort of a common misconception about Citizens United and the decision, which is that the decision was all rooted in corporate constitutional rights or the idea of corporate personhood. We're not going to get into this too much in this podcast, but that's actually a bit of a misconception. It's not as if the Supreme Court said in Citizens United, corporations are people, and therefore they have all the same rights that people do, and that's why they can spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections. That's not what happened. If you actually read the Citizens United decision, you'll see that it was more of an extension of the logic of Buckley from individuals to groups of individuals. So whereas in Buckley, the court concluded that individuals can spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections through independent expenditures, through outside spending. In Citizens United, they concluded that, well, corporations and unions are groups of individuals. So if one individual can do this, so can a group of individuals. And that's how we got to the Citizens United decision. Now, of course, this was a very poorly reasoned decision, one that failed to acknowledge the obvious differences between corporations and human beings. There are a couple quotes from the dissenting opinion in Citizens United that illustrate these points well. One is, although they make enormous contributions to our society, corporations are not actually members of it. Our lawmakers have a compelling constitutional basis, if not also a democratic duty, to take measures designed to guard against the potentially deleterious effects of corporate spending in local and national races. It might also be added that corporations have no consciences, no beliefs, no feelings, no thoughts, no desires. Corporations help structure and facilitate the activities of human beings to be sure, and their personhood often serves as a useful legal fiction, but they are not themselves members of we the people by whom and for our constitution was established. Of course, Citizens United is one of the most unpopular decisions in Supreme Court history and certainly perhaps the most unpopular recent decision, but as we sit here and still stands today. The last decision we like to highlight is one most people have not heard of before called Arizona Free Enterprise Club versus Bennett. And remember, all these cases are part of the how did big money get into politics framework. In Arizona Free Enterprise Club, Arizona voters had really had enough of a political corruption scandal in their state. There was a hideous scandal known as as scam, the kind of scandal where many legislators were convicted of embezzlement or fraud or bribery type crimes and in which a significant portion of legislators were implicated. In response, Arizona voters said, we want to fix our campaign finance system so this doesn't happen again. And they passed a public financing system for their elections, one in which if you were running for office in Arizona and you had enough small donations and signatures, you could get matching funds to keep up with a privately financed candidate who might be primarily supported by a smaller group of bigger donors. Now, this probably sounds like a great idea, and other states have done similar things with admirable results. But when this was challenged and went to the United States Supreme Court, not surprisingly, but unfortunately, they struck down Arizona's public financing system. And they did so even though it did not restrict the speech of a single individual. Their reasoning was that it was simply too burdensome to those privately financed candidates to have their opponents receive matching funds to keep up with them. So when you put those three cases together, Buckley, Citizens United, Arizona Free Enterprise Club, 
they tell the story of how our campaign finance laws came to be. Individuals can spend as much as they want to influence elections. So can corporations and unions. And there's not much you can do about it because even if you pass a public financing system or other worthwhile reforms, there's a good chance the Supreme Court will just strike them down anyway. That's how we got into this mess. Now let's turn to how we get out of it. There are only two ways to address problematic Supreme Court decisions. Those two ways are one, for the Supreme Court to reverse those decisions on their own, or two, through a constitutional amendment. Given that the composition of the current Supreme Court is very much like the composition of the Supreme Court that decided Citizens United or Arizona Free Enterprise Club, we cannot count on the Supreme Court to fix these decisions on their own. And because Supreme Court justices are appointed for life, we may very well have a Supreme Court with this composition for 20 or 30 years. And at Citizens Take Action, we don't believe we can afford to wait that long to fix our broken campaign finance system. And that brings us to the second option. And as crazy as this sounds, a constitutional amendment is our best chance of addressing the problem of big money in politics. Now, I know like passing an amendment may sound like an impossibility, but nearly every generation of Americans except for ours has made their own addition to the Constitution through an amendment. And we really think it's time for us to step up. To pass, an amendment needs the support of two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of state legislatures, or two-thirds of states through an Article 5 convention, and then three-quarters of state legislatures. So it's a heavy lift. But if there is any issue on the political landscape today that has the kind of public support necessary for a constitutional amendment, it is this issue. It is getting big money out of politics because we have the polls showing that over 80% of Americans want to transform our campaign finance system. We just need to turn that public support into concrete focused action. And in order to do that, Citizens Take Action has a constitutional amendment proposal called the Restore Democracy Amendment for us to organize behind. Now, let me walk you through the amendment landscape a little bit and tell you how the Restore Democracy Amendment fits in and why we think it gives us the best combination of impact and viability. Ever since Citizens United for the past seven years, there have been more than a dozen amendments proposed in Congress at one time or another to address the problem of big money in politics. None have come very close to passing, but at the very least, they have shown that there is some significant support for an amendment already in Congress. Over 150 members of Congress have already signed on to support one amendment proposal or another, which is very encouraging in terms of the progress that we've made so far. However, when I and some of our other Citizens Take Action team members looked at the amendment proposals that existed in 2016 and 2017, we thought that all of them fell into one of two groups that were less than ideal. The first group are amendments that are well-intentioned, but don't have a realistic chance of success. And these are namely amendments that would abolish all the constitutional rights of both corporations and unions. Now, we'll have another podcast dedicated entirely to the corporate constitutional rights issue because it's kind of a wonky subject. But to give you the brief bullet points of why we don't believe an amendment that abolishes all corporate constitutional rights is our best bet, there are 
two main reasons. First is that corporate constitutional rights are not really the source of big money in politics. As I said, the idea that corporate personhood was the basis for Citizens United is a misconception. And we know that it had nothing to do with Buckley v. Vallejo or Arizona Free Enterprise Club. And in fact, a lot of corporate constitutional rights, as strange as this sounds, are ones we actually want them to have. For example, it's because of Fourth Amendment rights that Google or Apple can't be forced to turn over information about all of its users to the government. And constitutional rights that offer legal standing are the reason that organizations like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood can file advocacy lawsuits in court. Constitutional rights are what prevent the government from taking a business's property without compensation. And so while when you look at Citizens United or Hobby Lobby or some Supreme Court decisions, corporate constitutional rights seem like a bad idea, when you look at other decisions, they seem essential. And as my dad would say, this is a problem that needs a chisel, not a jackhammer. So abolishing all corporate constitutional rights would be throwing some good rights out with some bad. But the more important reason we believe an amendment should not go so far as to abolish all the constitutional rights of unions and corporations is simply that it doesn't have a realistic chance of success. As I said, an amendment needs the support of two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of state legislatures, which means it needs to be extremely popular and have strong support from both Republicans and Democrats. And when rank-and-file Republicans and liberal law professors will all tell you that they don't support abolishing all corporate constitutional rights, that means an amendment pursuing that goal is extremely unlikely to succeed. On the other side of the spectrum, the second group of amendments in Congress were those that we thought were overly timid, ones that don't even overturn Citizens United, for example. And that's a problem because even if you passed an amendment, you would need additional steps, additional legislation to address Citizens United. And we can't necessarily count on Congress to do that. And even if we could, the next Congress could always come in and overturn that legislation and reinstate Citizens United. So we looked at all this and we thought we need an amendment that is powerful and passable. If it doesn't do both, then it's not worth pursuing. And that's what the Restore Democracy Amendment is. The Restore Democracy Amendment would do two critically important things. First, it would directly and immediately overturn Citizens United and prevent corporations and unions from using their general treasury funds to support or oppose political candidates. Second, and more importantly, it would shift power back from the Supreme Court to Congress, state legislatures, and voters so that we can enact the campaign finance reforms that we need. Because what those Supreme Court cases we discussed earlier showed was that even if we enact good reforms, the Supreme Court may very well strike them down. And frankly, <clears throat> the Supreme Court's poorly reasoned decisions in the campaign finance law area have shown that we can't trust nine unelected judges to be the guardians of our campaign finance laws. Voters and legislators routinely do a better job. And so by shifting power back to voters and legislators, we could then enact those publicly financed elections or limits on spending by ultra-wealthy individuals and have confidence 
that they would not be struck down by subsequent court decisions. Of course, the Restore Democracy Amendment would not solve all of our campaign finance problems at once, but it would solve major ones immediately and then give us the power to solve the rest. And we believe that's the most that a constitutional amendment in this area can do. Most importantly, because the Restore Democracy Amendment goes after big money from both sides of the aisle, from corporations and unions, we believe that gives it a realistic chance of getting the bipartisan support that we need to succeed. And if you want to dive into this even more and see the full text of the Restore Democracy Amendment, other amendment proposals, see how they compare, hop on our website at citizenstakeaction.org anytime and you can do that. But now I want to turn to the most important part of this podcast, which is the how you can get involved in this movement and this push for an amendment to get big money out of politics. Our vision for passing this amendment is a district by district approach, right? It's simply a matter of math. We need this many members of Congress. We need this many state legislatures. And then the amendment will pass and be ratified. And as I said, there's already significant support with over 150 members of Congress supportive of one amendment proposal or another. What we need to really grow this movement from the ground up are supporters in every congressional district who are organizing in their community. What that means is that we need good volunteers in every district who are finding the people in their district who support an amendment to get big money out of politics, getting those people informed, educated, and signed up, and then mobilizing their community to put pressure on their elected officials to support an amendment. If we can just get 50 or even 100 people in every congressional district who will put pressure on their elected officials with calls, emails, meetings that are well-coordinated and organized, you would be amazed at the impact that we can have. So the most important thing you can do if you support an amendment is sign up to volunteer through our website and then begin organizing in your community. The second thing that you can do, of course, is chip in or donate at citizenstakeaction.org. We are a volunteer-run grassroots organization, which means that we depend on donations for pretty much everything from our bandwidth for the podcast, to our website, to the flyers we give to members of Congress to explain the issue to them. The powerful interests we are up against have very deep pockets. So if you support the cause, then you can literally support the cause with a donation. Before we wrap up, I want to close with a final thought about what it's going to take for this push for an amendment to really succeed. And It boils down to just two words, people power. Corporations may have deep pockets. The Koch brothers may have all their lobbyists, but the vast majority of Americans want big money out of politics. And the path to a constitutional amendment is clear. It's laid out in the constitution and nearly every generation of Americans, except for ours, has passed a constitutional amendment. This is our chance to step up. But we need a critical mass of Americans to get involved. If enough of us do that, and if enough of us are organized, and we put pressure on our elected officials, and we persuade the ones who don't yet support an amendment, or we replace them with ones who do support an amendment, 
then we can achieve this goal. It's been done before. It can be done today. But we need to harness that people power. So if you want big money out of politics, take action. That's why our organization is called Citizens Take Action. Sign up to volunteer, chip in with a monthly contribution through our website, and let's show our elected officials what we are capable of. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to visit our website at citizenstakeaction.org, and please check out our other episodes of the Citizens Take Action podcast. Until next time, I'm David Edward Burke.